Saints of God, let's return in our Bibles this morning to Genesis, the fourth chapter. And I'll read for a second time the first eight verses. Same reading from last week, but just note that the text for this morning's sermon is just the last two verses, verses seven and eight. I'll begin reading at verse 1, Genesis 4, and read through verse 8. <clears throat> this is the word of God. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's blessing once again. Father, we ask for a gifting this moment for the one who preaches that goes beyond his preparations, his natural abilities, even your blessing in the days past, we pray for what our fathers lovingly called unction, Holy Spirit, grant in full measure your help to the preacher. And we pray that as you do this, you will Make an opening in every heart that is represented here. Uh, that even as we are not a congregation of Cain's, by your grace, that when you speak to us, you will pierce our hearts. You will cause us to stop and to think and to turn to you and to cry out to you in our neediness and, and we might live. Do well by your grace. So grant these blessings we are bold to ask. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we return to our passage this morning, we're looking more closely now at our Lord's words to Cain and Cain's 
despicable deed in light of those words. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. That's what God says to this son of Adam just before Cain becomes the first murderer in human history. Uh, this dialogue between God and Cain at multiple levels ought to be arresting to us, but not least of all because it contains the first reference in all of Scripture to this thing called sin. We're going to seek insight in our text about how sin operates in our hearts, what our responsibility is in light of that, particularly how we're to respond to one particular kind of sin, the one that's so spectacularly displayed in Cain, and we'll see God's way of grace towards sinners. All of that, a little theology of sin, you will, if you will, a little theology of the mortification of sin, and certainly the theology of God's grace towards sinners. So let's look first of all at the enemy within. So just to remind you, and for those of you who are just joining us today, we deduced last week that God had seen something in Cain as he brings his offering that is displeasing to him, and we thought not so much of the offering, but as we looked at the clues in the text and compared it with the New Testament, we saw that Cain's heart and Cain's larger life were displeasing to God. He doesn't believe, and he's not living a righteous life, so as he brings his offering, he's a card-carrying Pharisee. He's a hypocrite. And so God is displeased with him, and God points out to him, there's a way for you to be pleasing to me. You bring your life, your heart and your life in line with what you're saying to me and your offering, and I'll be pleased with you, as I've been pleased with your brother. Those things we've seen, and now we're returning to what God goes on to say to Cain. He has an invitation for Cain. And he also has a warning, Cain, you are in danger. If you do not do well, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Now the word for sin here is going to become a common word in the Old Testament. There's not anything particularly notable about that. The sin word is hatat. But what's especially significant is that second expression, sin is crouching at the door. This is a reference to something, kids, that wild animals do. They crouch just before they spring in order to catch and kill their prey. And as a matter of fact, before the book of Genesis is over, in Genesis 49, if you want to find it on your own time, you'll see a use of this word, crouching to refer to what a lion does. What does he mean when he says sin is crouching at the door? It's a metaphor. Uh, Cain's not standing right next to a physical door. We don't have any reason to believe. Rather, it's the metaphor of a course, a path, a decision, in fact, that will open up a whole trajectory of life. Going through a door, we still speak this way, going through certain doors in our lives, certain decisions lead to something else. 
than what we currently have. And God is saying to Cain, you've got a decision to make, Cain, between one door and another, if you will, doing well, not doing well. If you continue on the current path, which is not doing well, you're going to be ambushed. Sin is waiting for you there. It will pounce. You will become prey. So Cain is being warned by God. Man, you're in danger. You're in grave spiritual danger. As we think about what God is saying in light of the story that the first three chapters of Genesis have told, the thing that struck me, maybe striking to you as well, is that when God speaks to Cain, he doesn't speak of Satan. He's now speaking of something else. You would expect he could have used this same language to refer to that person, that demonic, evil person behind the serpent who was as well ambushing Eve earlier in Chapter 3, that's a spiritual predator if there ever was one. And he laid his trap and he seduced the woman and he led her into rebellion against God. And you might have expected God to say to Cain, he's going to do that to you, Cain. Satan is waiting for you. But he doesn't say that. Instead of warning Cain against Satan, God warns him against an enemy that's within him. That's actually part of him now. Something that's dwelling within Cain that is a threat to him. It's as if Satan's done his work, and for the purpose of this story, Satan has done his work, and now sin will do Satan's work for him. Sin that has a life of its own. Now, folks, this personifying of sin or this speaking of sin as if it's a person with or, an, or a living thing that has the ability to be against Cain, to have desires contrary to him, as he'll go on to say, and has the ability to pounce on him. This whole way of speaking of sin, as if it's personified, it's one of the more disturbing things we find in the Bible about this subject of sin. And it's not the last time. Perhaps it's come to your mind as I've been Speaking this way, of that famous passage in the New Testament where Paul does the same thing. He personifies this thing, this thing in his soul that's always out to get him. He says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Folks, when the scripture speaks this way, and it begins in Genesis 4, verse 7, it's underscoring something dreadful about the effects of sin, or rather the effects of the fall in the world. You don't just need to come under the influence of Satan now. 
to be led into doing badly. You just have to listen to your own heart. That's new with the fall of Adam. Now, I admit to you, there is something mysterious about the psychology of all this. I don't fully understand it. Genesis, or rather, Romans 7 has been quite the head scratcher for so many theologians because Paul speaks there about the I who doesn't want to sin and the sin that's in me that's sinning. It's like he has two persons in him. That's not precisely how we should understand this. Sin isn't actually a person. It doesn't actually have a will that's separate from our will. But the Bible speaks of us and our fall into this state of sin that, thank you, Adam and Eve, we now all inherit, as was our confession just a moment ago, as bringing us to the place where there's something inside our very souls that is continually seeking to do that which is evil. And God can actually speak of it as something in ourselves that's prowling and that is seeking to pounce upon us. Sin has in our souls a kind of life of its own. You, you could think of your own illustrations of this, some mutant program that's running in the system as a whole. I, your, your, your illustration would probably get us just as far as the one God uses, this lion crouching. And the problem is that whole threat, that whole danger is not from without us. It's from within. That's what God is saying. To Cain. Now, as I preach this congregation, I know that these are familiar concepts. You're biblically informed Christians, but I want you to imagine for a moment that you don't actually have any sense of the evil that's at work within your own soul. You don't have that fundamental concept of sin that Christianity has taught you. Imagine that your thought is everything that's wrong in your life is due to something outside of you, something that has from outside of you acted upon you. Imagine that that is a whole set of things like other people in the world, whole world systems, the time, uh, the food you eat, all the rest. You can imagine that. Well, you're imagining the way that a vast number of Americans think. They are aided by this, no doubt, by their therapists and their professional counselors who lead them to uh, see that everything that explains their messed up lives is from without them. And the solution is to change things outside of them. There's no concern outside of the church of Jesus Christ to look to the soul and to its sickness, its spiritual sickness. And so we live in a society where men with stage four cancer are trying to eat better in order to regain their energy. No sense. It's actually something inside. 
Our study of Genesis, brothers and sisters, has not had a low view of man. It's actually given us a sky-high view of man and the image of God, the height of creation called to be lords over all that God has made, but starting in Genesis 3. Now, especially in Genesis 4, all mankind are indwelt by this monster predator called Hatat, sin. Our souls are haunted souls. They're possessed by sin. We have the expression in our tradition, we speak of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they're all enemies to our walking in righteousness. Genesis is introducing those enemies to us, but in reverse order. We've, introduced, we've been introduced to the devil. Now we're being introduced to what would come to be called in the New Testament, the flesh, the sin that indwells us. For now... I'm wanting us simply to recognize that according to Genesis 4, 7, what God says to Cain, now that we live in a fallen world, we are not safe even within ourselves, in our thoughts, in the movements of our hearts. We're not safe. Sin is crouching by the door. That's the enemy within. Let's look secondly at the battle with sin. So in this interview with Cain, the Lord does more than warn him. He's invited him, he's warned him, and now he tells him what to do about this sin in his heart and life. He says again in verse 7, if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God's been speaking of sin like this crouching lion, and as such, this sin in Adam's heart has evil intentions against sin. But he says, Cain, you must exert yourself to rule over sin. Now, what does this mean? We've heard the language of ruling before, haven't we? In this account so far in Genesis, Adam and Eve are called to rule. They're called to take dominion over the creatures of the earth back in chapter 1. And Adam was especially called to, to rule over the earth, the ground, now Cain is being called to another kind of ruling, another kind of dominion, and it's over this sin that is seeking to be against him in his own heart. God's saying, in effect, Cain, your sin wants to rule you. Don't let it. Cain, you must rule over sin. You must fight back against the sin of your heart. Now, it probably is helpful for you to know uh, that this particular verse has come to be the site of a 
fair amount of theological conflict. Because it's been used by some to argue that God wouldn't say this to Cain, fallen, sinful Cain. He wouldn't say to Cain, you must rule over sin in your life unless Cain had the inherent ability to do that. You see where the controversy might come in. You know that our Protestant Reformation fathers were quite opposed to that view of fallen man. Luther wrote a whole book about it. The bondage of the will was his declaration that a fallen man, apart from the grace of God, has no inherent ability to do anything good. We just confess that in our confession of faith, much less to overcome sin in his life. So we lie under sin's complete dominion, apart from God's grace. Now, to those who suggested that God wouldn't have called Cain to rule over sin in his heart if Cain didn't have the natural ability to do so, Calvin says, in essence, actually, God does that all the time. Ever since the fall, everything that God commands that involves moral agency in the part of sinners, some kind of response to do what is good, everything he commands, in fact, we are unable to do. That's not how it was with Adam as he was first made. God had created Adam with the natural ability to do everything that God commanded, but ever since the fall and the entrance of sin and this, this lion in the heart, we lack the ability to obey. So Calvin quotes Augustine, they were good friends, as it were, he says that's why the right response to God's command is Augustine's prayer. Give what you command and then command what you will. So friends, just a little detour to talk to you about the theological controversy. It will serve us here as we continue. There's nothing in our text that proves that sinful man can become righteous on his own. Cain's first right response should have been, Lord, Give me a heart to fear your name, like the psalmist would later say. But, don't miss this. God is placing on Cain, clearly, the moral responsibility to wage a war within himself against sin. He's calling him to do more than just, yeah, notice there's a lion there. He's calling upon Cain to rule the lion, to subdue the lion. Now, folks, this is the first glimpse you have in the Bible of a struggle that will continue to be spoken of and will come to a culmination, yes, again, in the Apostle Paul's teaching. Romans chapter 6 comes to mind. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The apostle in Romans 6 is setting out a doctrine. We've come to call it the mortification of sin, which is the putting to death of our sinful deeds and desires. That's the way we put it in our membership vows. And this whole doctrine of uh, the Christian's duty to Kill sin, or as John Owen would say it, to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That begins in Genesis 4. 
and God's summons to Cain, you need to rule over this sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the occasion for me to remind you that if you're to have success in living the Christian life, it will not be merely measured in terms of all the outward things that you do that we can all see and commend you for and be thankful to God for. It begins with the hard, hard work of fighting sin in your own soul. What does that battle with sin look like? A battle that, as we've noted, has to be fought in the strength of the Lord. What does it look like? What would it look like? I'll put it this way. What would it look like if Cain had done what God said to do? You know he doesn't. We'll see that in a moment. But what would it have looked like if he had done what God said to do? What would it have looked like if he had ruled over that crouching tiger of sin? Two things at least. He would have come to know, to identify the sin that he was in danger of. He'd come to identify what is God talking about. He uses the general word sin. Sin is crouching at the door. What would have been the first thing that Cain should have known or should have done? It would have been to discern within himself what is the sin that God sees that puts me in such peril. He should have examined his heart, as we say, and you know what he would have found. It's clear to us, even from this distance. Had Cain heeded God's word, he would have turned his gaze inward and he was seen. My heart rose up in anger against God. But it didn't just stay there. It has turned into something perverse. Hatred towards my brother. Folks, we could have a whole sermon from the account of Cain and Abel just on the subject of envy. I don't know if you, I don't know what, how that word sounds to you, the word envy. I want you to see before we're done, it's one of the worst possible sins that can ever enter the heart of a sinner. Envy. It's far worse than covetousness. So covetousness is the desire to have what someone else has. He's got it. You don't have it. You're looking at it. Your heart desires it. God didn't give it to you. That's covetousness. Jealousy is when you turn from looking at what your neighbor has that you'd like to have and just recognizing he's got a lot of things that I don't have. I don't like that he has things that I don't have. That's an even greater sin than covetousness when you're jealous of a specific individual. But it gets even worse in the human heart where sin prowls. Envy is now not about the stuff. It's not about the things you don't have. It's about your heart's response to the person who has what you don't have. 
And instead of just being angry with God, that he gave it to him and not to you, you've come to be angry at him. That is a person in your life you don't want to be around. Your heart has become embittered towards the person that's blessed of God in a way that you're not. Oh, that's so ugly. That's so ugly. For Cain to have ruled over his sin, he would have had to come to see the sin. Name it to understand. This is what's happening in my heart. And the way we've just tried to do it in a summary fashion. Brothers and sisters, this is basic to everyday Christianity. It's knowing your own heart and being able to put a finger on sin. Not just sin in the abstract. I'm a sinful person. Sins. The sin that's at that door that's seeking to take you just now. Every act of outward disobedience begins with some crouching tiger, if you will, of sin within. And you begin to rule that sin by seeing it, knowing it, naming it, understanding it. Brothers and sisters, we need help. From each other in this. We need help from each other. Uh, parents, uh, you need to have this as a central part of your raising your children. This is something I, I see missing in much Christian parenting. It's this recognition that I need to help my son or my daughter see things in themselves. In specific nature. This is such and such a sin. This is what I'm seeing as a pattern. This is why I'm disciplining you. This is what we need to pray that God will overcome in your life. And that kind of parenting, you know why it's hard to do? Because it requires we have to know our own hearts. We have to do this ourselves. We have to help one another. This is that godly function of reproof in the body of Christ. Where we say, you know, brother, I'm seeing something. Seeing something. I think it's this. I submit this to you. You can't rule over sin if you can't name, if you can't see. Yep, there he is. He's right there. He's after me. So you have to identify sin for what it is. Secondly, you have to do the good that displaces that sin. So God's not calling Cain to just a policy of containment. Stop it is not a strategy for Christian living. Ruling over sin involves having identified the sin, doing well, doing that which is absolutely antithetical to that crouching sin. God told Cain he would be accepted if he did well. We saw that's a broad expression for the pursuit of righteousness. You know what that would have looked like in this particular case. Envy is the sin that's crouching, ready to tear him down. 
What do you do when you're consumed with envy? You love your brother Abel. That's how you rule over envy. You love the man. You say, how can I go towards this man? I want to have nothing to do with him. I want him out of my life. How can I go towards this man? How can, how can I pray for this man? How can I thank God for this man? How can I seek to learn from this man? How can I be a lover of the man that I hate? That's the only way you'll stop hating him. By doing well. In the strength of the Lord. Listen to how the apostle also in Romans 6, goes far beyond just saying, stop it. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. If you stop there, it would be just a policy of stop it. But he continues, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. If you're irritable with your spouse, theoretically, just an illustration, you can try to just stop it. He or she might tell you, stop it. You need to go beyond stopping it. You need to love her. You need to submit to him. You need to do something that will rule that sin. If you're in a depressed and self-pitying mood, that's the sin that's waiting at the door. It's going to get worse. Something bad's going to happen. Don't just snap out of it by the grace of God. Give thanks to him for everything, as the apostle says we should do. You're unhappy with those that are in authority over you, young or old here today. You're unhappy with those people that can tell you what to do. Don't just bite your lip. Give yourself to serving them. That's how you rule over the crouching tiger of sin. Can you imagine the difference the story would have been if Cain heeded God and what God calls him to do? He'd seen how this anger is turning into something that will go nowhere good. This is our calling as Christians in this battle with sin. Knowing our sin and doing that which alone is antithetical to that sin. And yes, always in the strength of the Lord, God is calling upon us in this to do what's impossible for us to do. And yet he only calls us to do that which he's willing to give in Christ Jesus for those who seek him. The enemy within, the battle with sin. And let's conclude with the third, the evil that all of us are capable of. Verse 8, 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Some of you may have a Bible translation that renders verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. The Hebrew doesn't include that, but there are some ancient manuscripts that have added that. The Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate. What they're trying to do is explain what is the role of this talking between Cain and Abel. And they've interpreted the talking as a kind of sly seducing of him into a remote place where he can do the deed. That may have been what the talking was. That's not contained for us in the original that Moses gives us. Another possibility is that Moses doesn't really need to tell us what they said. He simply wants to know that Cain had a bad heart towards Abel. Then he had words with Abel. And then he killed Abel. In other words, there's a progression between the men. That would have certainly, if that is the case, cause us to remember our Lord's words in Matthew 5 about the sin roots of the crime of murder. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whatever the nature of the words between Cain and Abel, we know that eventually the the talking stops and Cain resorts to violence. So that sin that's crouching at the door, it pounces. Cain's overpowering his brother himself is overpowered by the sin that he would not rule. Whether this was premeditated, come with me to the field, or whether it was in the heat of passion, in an argument, either way, Cain is ruled by a sin. Folks, as familiar as the story is, I hope it all over again, it's so very Shocking. Murder. We went from taking forbidden fruit to taking the life of another human being. And it's not just that it's another human being. The word brother appears twice in verse 8 in order to drive home the point. Cain killed his brother. The man who, once upon a time, come from the same womb as Mother Eve. How could we be here already? Brothers and sisters, one of the great lessons of Genesis 4 is that Cain's deeds are actually the natural, inevitable consequence 
of all the sins of the heart. But for God's grace, we'd all be guilty of the same. I think that's, that's, a, that's the main lesson of Genesis 4 when we come to the, the murder of Abel. See if you can just trace this and see how far you can see yourself in this progression. Cain's offering of thanks is rejected by God, and he's angry. Do you know anything about anger? Cain's anger turns towards the brother in that sin we've just described as envy. It's the resentment we feel when someone gets something we think we deserve, and it leads to a hostility of heart. The sin of envy is not liking someone because they've been favored in a way we haven't. Do you know anything about envy? There's some time passing. I don't know how much in the text, but with the passing of that time, envy settles into hatred. The end of a friendship, end of a brotherly relationship, the sight of that person for Cain becomes intensely unpleasant. You know anything about that? If verse 8 is talking about their speaking in the way we would talk about their speaking, they had words. Now Cain's animosity is being expressed in outward ways. There's an overflow of his heart. He's speaking out towards Abel. We'd say in our day, he's already verbally abusing his brother. You know anything of that? Ever done that? And the day comes when out of a desire just to be rid of this person, not have to deal with this person anymore, not have him part of your life anymore, Cain tears his brother's life away from him. Well, I trust that that still sounds strange to you. But nothing leading up to that should have sounded strange. Foreign, unfamiliar, alien, your own experience. Artists who depict this scene of the murder of Abel typically show him being bludgeoned to death. All we know for sure is that it was a bloody death. Cain spills Abel's blood on the ground. And brothers and sisters, when Jesus going through the Ten Commandments or a portion of them and comes to the Sixth Commandment and says, yeah, you've heard it said, don't murder. I'm saying to you, don't be angry at your brother. Don't insult him. Don't rage against him in your words. Jesus is driving home the point with just a little time, a little neglect of certain sins of the heart. We all do the same thing. Jesus is not saying that anger in the heart is morally equivalent to spilling the blood of a man. He's not saying that it's morally equivalent. He's saying they are of a piece. This flows from this, from the life. Does it seem strange to you, saints of resurrection, that my final application to you 
the sermon from Genesis 4, is to warn you against the sin of murder? Apostle John apparently thought that the church of his day needed this warning. Listen again to John. I quoted the passage last week. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. We know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Friends, sisters, every urge to be rid of someone should remind you, but for the grace of God, you're capable of what Cain did. I'll ask you, has the sin of Cain had any kind of purchase in your heart? Even in recent days, towards someone in your life, Maybe it's the person you've begun to avoid. Maybe it's the one you've broken a relationship off with. Maybe it's the person you've begun to think of with resentment. You've perhaps even begun to talk with disdain about them to others. Perhaps it's the person you can't seem to have a civil conversation with. The person you take pleasure in cutting down to size, as we say, the chance you get. It's the person you've come to identify as the greatest source of your unhappiness in life. It's the person you've come to dream of living without. Oh, brother, sister, sin is crouching at the door. Murder is just the ultimate form of wishing someone good riddance. So as shocking as it is to read what Cain did, we need to know it's the most natural thing in the world that he did in this fallen world. <laughs> I say to my ethics class, there's not two kinds of people in the world, murderers and all the rest, to include a few that wouldn't hurt a fly. No. Murder is a sin with a whole spectrum of manifestations in the heart and life. And we are all, as we say these days, on the spectrum. We're all there. That sin of murder. I think that's an important errand for us. We're confronted by this first murder in human history. And it should cause us to cling in light of all that we're capable of. Brothers and sisters, let's repent of six commandment sins. Let's recognize, for example, the sin of envy and resentment towards others. And let's look to Christ for grace. And as I conclude, Genesis 4 will encourage you that he is willing to give you that grace. I'll say again why. You know why? It's this whole conversation with God and Cain, or as I continue to think, Christ and Cain. That 
pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ, we have deduced is there walking in the garden, now uh, talking to Adam and Eve, and now talking to Cain. It's Christ is coming to Cain and giving him an invitation, giving him a warning. And we'll see he's not even done talking to him once he's a murderer. Matthew Henry's scratching his bald head when he says, it's an instance of God's patience and condescending goodness that he would deal thus tenderly with so bad a man in so bad an affair. Indeed it is. Christ being gracious to Cain in the midst of his anger against him. It's Christ being gracious to Cain when he says, I want you to do well and I want you to be accepted. It's Christ being gracious to Cain when he says, don't go there, Cain. We've seen Jesus warning Cain against the very thing that happens. That's the tragedy of Cain, that he doesn't heed a gracious warning. You and I can take the grace of the warning, heed it, come to the one who's graciously warning. Make the prayer of the psalmist. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Be comforted that the one who warns, who graciously pleads, will receive the one who comes with that prayer. We grant all grace, not only to forgive past doing badly, but grace to do pleasing to God. Amen. Seek that grace in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you've come to sinners in this room again today. Come graciously despite what you see in our hearts, what you know would be the natural effect of our sin. You've come graciously to save us from, our, from ourselves. And so we would listen. We would turn. We would believe. We would do in your strength what you call us to do. We ask that this very day would be that in a new way for a sinner in peril in this place. We will forever praise you and boast indeed in you, gracious God. You've come to sinners in their sin, even at their worst, and invite them to turn to you. Hear our thanks, receive this boast, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.